With this podcast, we conclude our study of the book of Exodus. We see Moses preparing to move out with Israel, the restored relationship with God's promise to continue leading the nation as they move into the promised land. God gives cautions and warnings and calls to obedience, and as we discuss, these are intended to protect them from contamination by the people that they would soon be dealing with just as all of God's commandments are for our blessing and His glory. Most of all, we remember that for us, our calls are to love Him and to love others. I hope you're blessed by this podcast and this whole series on the book of Exodus. Welcome to Studies in Exodus. This series of podcasts is produced by Sephora Audio Productions. These sessions were presented at Foothill Bible Church in Lincoln, California. Your speaker is Pastor Jeff Cregan. Join us now as the class is about to start. So we're finishing up Exodus. Yes, there are some more chapters, but we're not going to cover them because we basically already covered them when we did the series on the tabernacle. Chapter 35 to the end is instructions about building the tabernacle and all those things that we've already touched on. So we're going to finish up with chapter 34. All righty. Now I saw in my dream that just as they had ended this talk, they drew near to a very miry slough, and that was in the midst of the plain. And they, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog, and the name of the slough was Despond. Here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being grievously bedabbed with the dirt. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink into the mire. Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Truly, said Christian, I do not know. At that, Pliable began to be offended and angry and said to his fellow, Is this the happiness you told me all this while of? If we have such ill speed at our first sitting now, what may we expect twixt this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life? You shall possess the brave country alone from me. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two, and got out of the mire, the side of the slough, which was next to his own house, and so away he went, and Christian saw him no more. Wherefore, Christian was left to tumble in the slough, to spond alone, but still he endeavored to struggle, and to that side of the slough that was still further away from his own house, and next to the wicked gate, which he did, but could not get out, because the burden that was on his back. But I beheld in my dream that a man came to him whose name was Help, and asked him what he did there. Sir, said Christian, I was bid to go this way by a man called Evangelist, who directed me also to the yonder gate that I might escape the wrath to come. And as I was going thither, I fell in here. Help, but why did you not look for steps? Christian, fear followed me so hard that I fled the next way and fell in. Then he said, Give me thy hand, and he gave him his hand, and he drew him out, and set him upon sound ground, and bid him go on his way. So, what we've seen over the last weeks was what it takes to restore relationships with God. And we're talking about relationships, well, relationships, fellowships with Israel, with us, fellowship, with God. And what breaks that fellowship is sin, of course. And in the last chapter, we saw the end of the school at Sinai because Israel messed up bad enough that there wasn't much that God could teach him at this point. So he's getting ready to tell Israel it's time to move on. But there was... So that that chapter, and to an extent this chapter... Is preparatory, and as you'll see, if you keep reading in Exodus, you'll see part of the preparatory was all this about the tabernacle that we've looked at already. And then if you're interested, you can continue on and look at what's going on in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But the nation still hadn't moved. Part of the reason was Moses wanted to be sure that if they were going to move on, that God was with them. He wasn't interested in this angel leading them. He wanted to make sure it was God. He was already not real happy having to lead Israel. And the last thing he wanted to do was be out there leading them into the land. Because remember, the expectation still is 
that they're going to be going directly into the land. And he wanted to make sure that as they went in, that it was God that was directing them. Good choice for Moses. And so he says, I'm not going to move. I'm just going to sit there till I know you've got your act. No, till I know that you're going to lead us, God. And it's like us. We should be doing the same thing. I mean, look what happened to poor Christian. He took a run for it and he ends up in the slew of the spawn. And if we run ahead of the Lord, we can get in trouble. Even if we want to go like Christian where God wants us to go, we don't know how he, want, how he wants us to go or what speed he wants us to go or what path he wants to take us down to get us to that goal. We know we only really have two goals. One is to be conformed to the image of Christ, which is a lifelong goal. And the other is to go home to be with the Lord. Obviously, there are a lot of different paths God can take us down to accomplish both of those. And so we need to be moving ahead in dependency on the Lord as well. And so we don't want to join poor old Christian in the mud puddle trying to figure out how we got here and where God actually wants us to go next. So, and we've talked about this before, but what are some of the steps that we can take to make sure we don't end up in the slough, to make sure that we're following God's lead in our lives? Be yeah. patient. <laughs> that will get us there, yeah. Daily prayer. Yes, daily prayer will help us stay out of there, yeah. What else? Seek what's counting. Yes. Don't run our emotion. Yes. Seeking wise counsel, yeah, that's always good. And definitely, one of the basic rules of life is do not make life-changing decisions in the middle of emotional chaos because they will almost inevitably be bad ones. <laughs> what else? There's one, one more I haven't heard. Staying in his word? Yes. Prayer. More, we can always do more of that than we're doing. Being in the word. Being patient versus impatient. Seeking godly counsel, taking our time. I mean, we will once in a while run up against a situation where we have to make a decision like that, but that's not very rare. Most of the time, there's time, and so, and that's kind of what Moses is saying. He's saying, "Okay, I'm going to take the time. I'm going to sit here until I know you're leading us, God. I'm not in that much of a hurry." And it still didn't keep them out of trouble, but hey, it, it was a good idea. So if we constantly talk about the need for Bible study and prayer and worship, and sadly, the need for constant repentance, keeping our accounts short. And all of that's vital if we're depending on God to lead us. But in underlying all of that, is the knowledge that we are weak and we can't do it on our own. In other words, it all has to start with a humble spirit, right? Because as long as we think we can solve the problem ourselves, we're not going to go to God. And the other piece of that, also lack of humility, is if we can't think of a solution, well, obviously then God can't. Okay. Yeah. We tend to reflect ourselves onto him instead of him onto us. And that that becomes very problematical. See, we have to have the desire to be led. And then somebody will whip up a Christian friend of ours. Yes, but God helps those who help themselves. You, know, you can't just sit there waiting. Yes, but let's not. That's maybe true, but let's not confuse issues. We're not talking about the woman that gets up and waits till the Spirit tells her what to wear that day before she gets dressed. That person has got a screw loose. But we are in the decision making. Do we do this? Do we do that? How do we behave? That's where we want God leading. So Moses now becomes that intercessor for the people again. Back up just to give context to the beginning of the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. 
and no one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. And so Moses cut two stone tablets of stone like the first. And he rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, and the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take up for us your inheritance. So Moses, now he's identifying himself with the nation. Now he's becoming the intercessor. Now he is saying to God, We are. So now he's stepping in and... You can see the shift from, have you seen these turkeys, to we are a stiff-neck people. He's now becoming their representative. He's pleading for God's mercy on the nation as a whole. And he knows that the people need to repent. And it's interesting, isn't it great to have leadership that actually has a relationship with God that's constructive? Because by stepping into the place, he's not saying that the people are repentant. He's saying he is repentant for the nation. He wants God to be merciful on the nation. When Satan accuses us in heaven, we have an intercessor, that's Christ Jesus, the defender who says, hey, it's irrelevant, the sin has been paid for. The accusation is empty because it's been dealt with, it's stamped paid. And Moses is saying, I stand for the people, repent. He throws himself on God's mercy. And notice for all those that think God is harsh in the Old Testament, how is God described here? Loving, merciful. See? God has always been a God of mercy. God has never been a God who's wanted to judge. He's judged because he's also righteous and a righteous judge because that is his character and he can't violate his own character. There are things God can't do. God cannot violate his own character. Dr. McGee says, there's a question that even God can answer. It's in Hebrews. How can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I would argue God can answer that. We can answer that. The answer is you can't. But the, what he's saying is God can't find a way to save people outside of Christ. That's why he did what he did. That's why religions don't work. Because God says, I prepared a way and there is no other way. I can't let you in. I, it's not that I don't want to. What is he saying? He doesn't want to judge. He wants no man to be judged, to have to fall under damnation. That's not his desire. So he provided a way to avoid that. But if people reject that, then that's the consequence. And so Moses is turning to him based on the fact he is loving and merciful and patient. <laughs> And so God says, what? The covenantal relationship will be restored. I'll go before my people again. If they show this attitude. And so he reiterates, why does God keep his promises? Because we deserve for them to be kept? No, because he's made them. He says, I promised Abraham, I promised Isaac, I promised Jacob, therefore I will do this. Not because you're deserving, but because of promises I made to that. I will save you because I went to the cross for you, and I promised that if you accepted that gift, I would save you. Period. You can't lose it because you can't earn it. It's a gift I give you. You can't lose what I give to you because it wasn't yours in the first place. And so he reiterates this covenant. And so he's going to start over. And of course, hopefully now they're going to do well, right? It's like your kids. Why don't you straighten them out? They're never going to do that again, right? Just like us. Yeah, right. Just like us. Yes. I never make the same mistake twice. <laughs> oh, I can't stand that. And neither can I. <laughs> you get at least five times. Oh, at least. Yeah. Okay. In the last week, you mean? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Exactly. The last day. Because God is a covenant maker. He made a covenant with Israel, which is still valid, by the way. That land is still there. Remember, their ownership of the land, or God's giving them ownership, 
was unconditional. Their occupancy was what was conditional. And they blew it. They still own it, but they can't live in it now. I'm not talking about now. I'm saying that's how they got thrown out. And even if Israel is back in the beginning of fulfillment of prophecy, which I think it probably is, it's not back in belief, it's back in unbelief. But that's biblical too, because we know they won't, it won't be in belief till it goes through the 70th week of Daniel. The time of Jacob's trouble. That's when they will finally repent and turn back to God. Got to go through another Holocaust worse than the last. So, God's going to spell out the ground rules of the relationship. Because relationships from God's perspective have ground rules. In other words, we're going to reiterate the Ten Commandments. Which is what happens between verses uh, 10 and 26. He reiterates them again. Saying, but he starts off by saying, picking up at verse 11, Observe what I have commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. And you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, and you eat of his sacrifice. And you shall take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the months of Abib, for the month of Abib is when you came out of Egypt. And all that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock and your firstborn of cow and sheep. The firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem on a lamb, or you shall not redeem it, and you shall break its neck. And after the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest in the plowing time, and on the harvest you shall rest. And you shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. So, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, But brothers, but I, brothers, cannot address you as a spiritual people, but as the people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I feed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Israel was back where they started. And so God has to, again, has to come up and say, here's how you need to behave. You forgot. We haven't been out of Egypt all that long. You never even got to get the Ten Commandments the first time because you messed up so bad, Moses wouldn't even bring them into the camp. And so he says, stop, remember all these things. And the important thing, even in these laws, is to remember that God is saying, I'm doing this for your benefit. Notice in all those, I don't want you to do this because they will drag you down. The rules, I don't want you playing with those kids. They're bad influence. How many of you had, well, yours yours isn't quite old enough to have to worry about that one yet. But I'm sure every one of you that's got more mature kids has gone through that when they were younger. I don't want you hanging out with those people. That's what God says to them. I'm doing all this because I don't want you hanging out with them because why? Because you were vulnerable, as you've just shown in the last five minutes, to idolatry. And so the easiest way to avoid a sin is not put yourself someplace where you're setting yourself up to fall into it, right? Isn't that the case of what Lot did? He associated with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. And for his testimony, when he just went downhill. Yeah, although I keep coming back to that weird thing where he's in the list of the got men of faith in Hebrews, and I don't know what to do with that. So, so there is something Moses didn't tell us about Lot. I don't know what it was. But Lot is a really good example of not judging people based on their behavior because you don't know where their heart's at, and God does. 
Because if all we had was the Old Testament, we would say Lot was a really messed up person. And Lot was a really messed up person. But there was something else. And I think I may have a vague idea just based on some hints that Moses made. And that is, in spite of being where he shouldn't have been, in some way he was a testimony to the people around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, that's all I can imagine. Well, enough for them to make him a judge. Yeah. Well, that could cut both ways. Yeah. Yeah. They say, well, it's like your non-believing friends calling up and saying, can you pray for me? Which probably most of us have experienced. Yeah. So, if we can't demonstrate for ourselves that we're applying the basics, then how are we going to be able to handle the deeper things of the Lord? We're too going to still be on the bottle and not the fork. And it's not, it's not about the depth of your knowledge of Scripture. It's about the maturity of your walk that we're talking about here. So God told Moses what's to come. He would do great things. He was going to do signs and wonders. And we know he parted the Jordan. The Red Sea gets all the publicity. But he parted the Jordan too, right? And he went before them and gave them victory over their enemies down the line. And so he's going to make it clear. And they're going to serve as a witness because... The nations around them are going to see the God of Israel acting and they're not going to want to mess with them. And all of the blessings, though, come tied to obedience, which shouldn't be a big surprise either, right? See, God's children are going to be a testimony to him one way or the other. They're going to be a testimony of God's blessing when they're obedient and they're going to be a testimony that God's a loving father and disciplines his children when they mess up. Either way, they're going to be a testimony. God intended Israel to be a testimony. It was. Trouble was, it was a testimony of what happens when you're God's children and you mess up seriously. But even then, God preserved them, right? We had our annual dinner last night, and we were talking about that, because the fact that you know, things are getting, if you're aware, they're getting even more volatile around the Temple Mount right now because there's a radical group in Israel that wants to open up other areas of the Temple Mount that they can, so they can go and pray. You can imagine how that's going on. But the fact is, not only have they got everything ready to build a temple, and they've genetically rebred the red heifer, but now we know with genetic testing, you can even show the descendants of the priestly tribe, and they found those markers. So for those who are saying, see, how are we going to, God? you know, the, Israel, the Jews have been scattered. How are they going to know who, who's Jewish and who's not? Well, besides the obvious answer, God's kept track of them. Uh, the fact is we can genetically demonstrate it too now with genetic testing. Thank you, Ancestry.com. 99 bucks, you can find out what your mix is if you really want to know that badly. I don't. Um, <laughs> They're doing it for free right now. Oh, they are? Yeah. Oh, rats. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I may not want to know, but I'm Jewish. It's free. Okay, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to look. Hmm. Okay, moving on before I mull that one too much. But the fact of the matter was they were disobedient all through their history. And so they serve as an example of how God deals with, which is a warning, isn't it? If God deals with his own children this way, what likely, what hope do you have if you're not his child to escape? The answer is you don't. You can't. And it's also a testimony to the pagans around them because it's showing that God is not one of the pagan gods that can be bought off if you simply placate him. Because God is just and righteous and you can't bribe him, which was the way you dealt with your pagan gods, right? You placated. See, and God judges based on the heart, which is why we need to be so careful about judging because we can't see the heart. If somebody presents as Christian, and if they could describe what that means theologically correctly, and they're behaving ways that are clearly not the way Christians are to behave, then we can deal with them on that basis. But we can't say, well, a Christian wouldn't do that because there's not much a Christian wouldn't do. What we can say is that's not how a Christian should be behaving and act accordingly. 
But we're not called, as Dr. McGee always says, well, we can't judge whether somebody is saved or not. We're just called to be fruit inspectors. Okay, God knows the heart. Now, if their definition of salvation is all messed up, that's a different story. And then we need to quit worrying about their behavior because why are we trying to fix the behavior of non-believers? For our own comfort, obviously. But I mean, other than that, why don't we try to straighten them out? And so God judges the heart and he blesses or judges based on their heart. Not like the pagan gods on some arbitrary whim. If you read Greek and Roman mythology, which I love, those gods acted all the time based on their whims and their emotional chaos. They were just superhuman in the sense that they were even more over the top than people were. Watch the Ring of the Nibelung if you can sit through a 12-hour operas and see about that. So, picking up in verses 11 and 17... God is warning them about the dangers of getting involved with the people around them, or that will be around them when they move into the land. And the reason was, the, uh, the warning was that because they had practiced idolatry themselves, and the reason they did is because it was normative in the culture they were living. I think this is why the divorce rate is right now actually higher in the church than it is in the world around us, because it's the norm. How many of you have heard Christians say, well, God wants me to be happy. So therefore, I'm going to leave the bone. Because I'm uh, one of my favorites, and I'm using that in an ironic sense, was the woman that came to me and said, um, you know, my husband has got this and this and this wrong with him. And, and I've been meeting with this guy, and we've been praying together and looking for the Lord's will and reading the Bible together. And I know God wants me to be happy, so I'm divorcing my husband, and I'm going to marry this guy. Oh, we're seeking God's will. So you don't need to be seeking God's will. You know, He already knows that what you're doing is not. Of course, that didn't make any difference. Went ahead and did it anyway. Because they were studying and praying together. How wonderful. My husband won't do it with me. This guy will, so I'm going to leave my husband. Where's it say that's the reason? Oh, sorry. So, God once again reminds them of the dangers of idolatry. Now, thinking about how people respond, what do you think would be their response to God saying this again? For the upteenth time, he's telling them what would be the normal human response. They, they, would, they would kind of like, yeah. they would comply for a while, but then they would just go back. Well, that would be the behavioral response, but the normal response would be, come on, God, you already told me. Why are you telling me again? I know. I won't do it again. Come on, quit nagging. That's the normal response. Yeah, you're right. I'm telling you again. What did you do five minutes ago? Obviously, you don't. And God's the only one that has permission to nag, by the way. We can't nag. Can't nag your kids. Can't nag your spouse. You, know, you can tell them what. Well, your kids, you can put, put boundaries and consequences. With your spouse, you can tell them once, and then that's it. I don't care. You know, it's not our job to make our spouse do what we know is right, even though they're wrong. I'm sorry. It's not our job to... <laughs> But God has the right to tell us as many times as... But quit. And the re, why do we want him to quit telling us? We don't want to hear it. Because we know that that's what we're going to do. So, I have a feeling... And of course, they knew they wouldn't do this again. Right? They weren't going to fall into the trap. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. God knew better. See, what is the quickest way to get in trouble? I'd never do that. Mm -hmm. I've heard that a lot. Oh, yeah. Which is a guarantee you will. Absolutely. So, he first he starts, God knows how to talk to people. He starts by encouraging them. Oh, back to head one. He starts by encouraging them. He says, I'm going to drive the people in the land out ahead of you. He didn't say, by standing with you as you whip out your swords and go after them. But I'm going to chase them out ahead of you, right? And again, as I said earlier, he's driving them out for two reasons. One, to protect them from the dangers of idolatry. And two, so that the land is not sitting barren at the back end for a long time as they move in. So the, it's in good shape for them to move in. And by the way, this is important to recognize too. God was not driving out some innocent people. 
They had reached the point in their sin that their sins had gone up before God and he was casting them out because of the degree of their sin to protect Israel and because of their sin. If they had repented and turned to God and became a God-fearing people, he wouldn't have chased them out. He would have let them share the land with Israel. Now, he knew that wasn't going to happen. But it's like it's the, basically it's the same concept as church discipline. Church discipline is to say to somebody, hey, you need to correct. The goal is to restore, and if they don't restore, then it's to remove them for the protection of the body and to wake them up to the degree of their own sin. It's the, basic, it's the same thing. And so he's casting out not nice people who are minding their own business, but people whose own sins are so great that he's judging them. And he's using Israel to bring his judgment down on them. So it's, we need to remember that multiple things are going on here. And God is righteous and just even in giving Israel the land and casting out the people that live there. And in fact, as you know, when Israel didn't obey and completely cast them out, Israel got in constantly got into trouble. So were they traveling through the land, every every place that they're picking at the land, are they leaving part of the congregation? Yes, and as you see that as they move in, in fact, there were a couple of tribes that didn't even want to cross the Jordan and ended up settling on the other side, which is not where God wanted them to settle. And so they're establishing, and they would go fight into an area, the nation would go up and fight in an area to clear that area, and then the tribes would settle there. So even if it was a tribe who settled in an area of the land, well, they were supposed to. They didn't always do that either. But they were supposed to go and then help clear out the next area, and then they could go home, and then the next group would settle. Nothing ever went the way God had intended it to. Say, God, we read in Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 19, and the foreigner, and these are interesting passages, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I shall bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. So again, even then, if any of them had actually repented and turned to God and became followers of God, they could have stayed. God makes this very clear. And this is the future promise. And this is a really good one to remember when you're talking about the current state of affairs in the Middle East. When we tell people they need to be praying for the Arab peoples. and for Isaiah 19, 23-25. Keep this one on your refrigerator. This is future. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian, which is the Arab peoples, if you follow the lineage... And the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, when the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Okay? And I keep going back to the fact that the Koran talks about Jesus, not as deity, but as Messiah who's coming up to establish his kingdom and to rule and to judge. And Israel, the Jews, at least those who are somewhat religious, look for the coming of the Messiah to come and rule on the throne of David. So they're both looking for Jesus in different ways, neither of which are looking at him correctly today. But when he comes, that's one of the reasons they will recognize him. And so we need to be in prayer. It's interesting, our friends, um, they have a church in El Dorado Hills is where they live. And a group of Muslims just bought a strip of land to build a mosque right next to the church. Now, they had wanted to buy this land to stand parking and stuff for their own buildings. And they were told, hey, you can bid on it, but I guarantee you're not going to outbid these people. And so their pastoral staff has been talking to the, to the leader and have been trying to establish connections so they can have a testimony. And some of the body are extremely fearful about this. And I understand. Remember the Koran, those who say that they're peaceful, that they're nonviolent, that may be true. Okay, but if it's true, then they're the equivalent of Jack Mormon. They're not following the teachings of the Koran. Okay. But what the Koran does also teach is you can lie to infidels. So the fact somebody's saying that doesn't even mean it's true. Because you're to cover up who you are until you're numerous enough that you can 
accomplish what you want. So is a certain amount of anxiety understandable? Absolutely. But the issue isn't, are they what they say they are, or are they dangerous, or do we have anxieties? That's not the issue. The issue is, what does God want us to be to these people, and which is what? A testimony for him and praying for them. So, and I said, you need to let the staff know that they don't, don't invalidate their fears. Don't say you shouldn't feel that way, because that's not going to help. Instead, say, I understand why you feel this way, but what does God expect us to do? Because that's the only valid argument you can make. So in our fear, reach out to them. That is the answer. Okay. But what's most important is what God said through the prophet Isaiah is what the end result is going to be, which is Israel, Egypt, and the Arab nations are going to be God's people. Because remember, God did make promises to Hagar regarding her son. The church overlooks these passages very easily. And we can't, we don't, may have to like them, but this is the end result. This is what's going to happen during the millennium. These are going to be allies. And you see hints of that every once in a while. Egypt at times has been an ally of Israel. Right now against the ISIS, uh, Jordan and some of those have been allies. You see shadows that says, under the right circumstances as possible. And what's the right circumstance? Them all following Jesus as the Son of God and his Messiah. And that will happen, because that's what we're told right here. Important, extremely important verses here in Isaiah. But what is important from God's perspective is, he wants them to understand these people are a threat, and the Canaanites are not Arab nations, they're a whole different group of people. Okay? But these people are a threat because of their sin and their idolatry, and I'm protecting you, and you can't lie down with Satan. Because what happens in marrying into the world? How many Christians do we know that fell in love? I've watched multiple versions of the Christmas Carol, and he asks his nephew, "Why didn't you get married?" And he says, "Because I fell in love." And Scrooge goes, "Because you fell in love." And he's like, "The only thing stupider than Merry Christmas." And Christians marry non-Christians because they fell in love. That's a dumb reason. My younger sister went through that. She even tells me today, she says, I think of that song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. And that was her. And that's right. And see, this is something you said earlier about, you said about not making decisions based on emotions. When you fall in love, it changes your brain chemistry, so you really are dumb. I mean, it literally shuts down your judgment when you first fall in love. And that's why we, those of us who do dream marital say, you don't even know somebody until you've been with them a year and a half to two years before you can even be talking about marriage because it takes that long for the brain chemistry to reestablish itself. <laughs> hey, you know, God's got a sense of humor. I never talk about my parents and each other five weeks and we're married 50 plus years, you know, because God has a sense of humor. I'm just talking about what's reality and what reality is is, you, is they start hanging around with these people and they know them and get to know them and all of a sudden they're marrying the God and because they're falling in love. And he says, and what's the end result of that? Do you convert them? No, they convert you. Stay away. It's a snare, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14. And I apply this to dating and business relationships too. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Don't do it. It's one thing when two non-believers get married and one of them gets saved. That's a whole different ball of wax. But when, and the word is nominal, nominal believers or believers that fell in love and their brain chemistry got screwed up, marrying non-believers, it's a disaster. I've seen it work, though. I mean, from... You know, a couple of the woman was saved and the man was not, and they eventually came. It works because God is merciful. And ask them about all the problems they had in the meantime. But there's still disobedience and there's still a price to pay. I mean, I remember when many, many, I was now an adult when all of a sudden my mom was struggling with some of her choices emotionally, the issue of disobedience to the Lord, not 
wanting not not loving my dad, not wanting not, none of that, but just the sense of guilt over the fact she'd made all these choices out of God's will back in the day. Even if God in His mercy works it out, you still there are still consequences even then. Yes. You, you have to choose whether you're going to live by faith or not. Yeah. But you could say, look, they worshipped the idol and they weren't struck by lightning. Yeah. So it's okay for me to worship the idol. Yes. And, and that's why I don't talk about those exceptions when I get mixed couples coming into my premarital counseling because the fact is, the fact that God chooses to be merciful to somebody is irrelevant. You're still supposed to obey God. And our responsibility is to hold people to God's standards, not to point out that God's merciful. So and Paul says it. You know, should we sin all the more because God is gracious? God forbid. So, the fact we can show examples of God's mercy is not the issue. That's about God. And that's also no guarantee that he's going to be merciful to you because he was merciful to somebody else. So, that's a touchy one about obedience. Regardless. So not only were they to avoid these pagans, but as they moved into the land, God would destroy them. And he makes clear, very clear, you can't even keep, you know, the Israeli Historical Association, you can't even keep these sites as historical interest. You have to tear down the ashrams, you have to destroy their idols, you have to destroy every vestige of their idolatry. Because if you leave it, you're going to be in trouble. This is the place that you've got to get rid of them. All of it's going to be a snare. Right? And God makes it clear once again, I am a jealous God. I am not going to share my position with anyone or anybody. You know there's only one true God. You have to follow me. You're without excuse. Those who have heard the truth have no excuse. And of course, as you read further into the New Testament, you see, of course, they violated it. They intermarried. They did all the things that God said would happen if you disobeyed. They did. This is a, oh, I'm sorry. I never thought this would. Excuse me, I told you it would happen. I mean, what was Solomon's biggest problem, aside from all the mother laws? It was having so many, it was having so many wives and concubines, and what did they do? They brought in the worship of idols into Israel with them. Well, you can't expect me to make them give up their own gods. No, I can't, which is why you're not supposed to be involved with them. But it's just for peace treaty reasons. It's not because I love them or oh, you can't trust me to make peace, huh? You got to do it yourself, your way, right? That's why I gave you wisdom so you could do this, huh? Okay, that's working out well for you, isn't it? And in fact, it led to the civil war and the destruction of the nation. There are consequences. If one is an alcoholic, one shouldn't keep a bottle around the house to show you're not drinking anymore. See? That's wise. You know, if one has trouble with lust, touch your internet connection. Stay off the internet. Either that or get one of these Christian web browsing services that block everything. Actually, I'd find that more frustrating than disconnecting from the internet altogether, I think. So, even though he spells out the dangers, they could and did fall in sin. Don't get involved with these people socially. They'll invite you to dinner. And you'll get food sacrificed to idols. And that's always the best meat. But you have to be polite. Which is why you're not supposed to be there. See, it's the little slips, the things that are unimportant, that send you down that slippery slope. Very few people jump off a cliff from leading a really good life into a massive major sin. Generally speaking, most people do it step by step, inch by inch, and slide down the slide. So first your family goes to dinner. Then next your son is going there. Uh, their son is going with your daughter. And of course in the desire to please you, he goes to church with her a few times. And gets saved. And then they get married. 
and you find out, oh, that didn't work. Right? And before you know it, the whole family is in idol worship. And that's what we read in Numbers. Chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the, with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to the Baal at Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We just want to fit in with the community around us. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. Sounds a lot like mainstream Protestantism. The National Cathedral. Let's let the Muslims come in and have prayer services in the National Cathedral. But we all just got to get along. No, we don't. As much as it's dependent on me, I need to get along. But what does that mean? As much as I can get along while still being obedient to God, I'll get along. But that's where the line is. And... And if that line is in place, then anything across that line, no, I don't need to get along. Would you can still be respected. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the difference. Christians are the only people who can be truly tolerant and say, I disagree with what you're doing, but you have the right to do it. Assuming you're not talking about breaking the law or something. You have the right to do it. That's what tolerance is. Tolerance isn't saying... I disagree with what you're doing, but I'm going to support you and say how wonderful it is. That's not tolerance, okay? which is what some people are redefining it to be. But we're the only ones that can be truly tolerant. Islam says you have to become one of us or you die. I mean, true Islam, right? Some of the cults say we're the only way, and if you reject us, we're going to judge you. And say, Christians say, hey, you have a right to believe whatever you believe. Right? It's not our job to straighten you out. We'll tell you the truth. You do with it as you believe. That's tolerance. Okay. So yes, we have to be respectful in how we speak to people. But we do not water down, minimize, play with the truth in concern that when we give it to somebody, we make them uncomfortable. Because what did Jesus say? You know, if they hate the master, they're going to hate his servants. That the, we are not to be offensive because the truth is offensive enough. Right. So we're not called to get along. And that's and where the church starts worrying about that is where the church is in trouble. Which was why mainstream Protestantism in this country has gotten it is in such empty and meaningless. Yes? Sometimes people are offended because I and this is why, in an effort not to make anybody uncomfortable, we're doing them a disservice because their very discomfort may be the Holy Spirit speaking to their hearts. And if our concern is protecting people, what we're, I'll tell you what our real concern is. If our concern is not making people uncomfortable, that's not our concern. Our concern is not making them unhappy with us. That's what our real concern is. We just want to be liked. And so we don't want to make them uncomfortable because we don't want them to dislike us. So it's, it's totally self-serving. It's totally self-focused. If we really care for somebody, then we're going to tell them what God, in love, what God calls us to tell them for their sake. And if we lose them over it, then we lose them over it. And we can grieve it, but that doesn't mean we should keep our mouths shut. By the way, the key word being there is how we tell them needs to be love, of course. So, because God is still a jealous God. And we still commit idolatry, right? Whenever we put anything in God's place, that is idolatry. And so Israel gets in real trouble. Now, why did he warn specifically against molten images? Well, that's pretty obvious. The golden calf, because that's how that was made. They already showed they were doing that. 
Can you think of any examples that are dangerous today? Yes. Putting things in front of, ahead of worshiping God. Absolutely. What are the kinds of things we put in front of him? Jobs, power, family, ministry. That's always disturbed me. How we spend our time. Yeah. A lot of things, though. Perception. Yeah. Seeing things the way we want to see instead of the way it is that God tells us. Yeah. So, having spoke on the issue of idolatry, even he says, okay, let's move on to another topic now. Uh, he brings up the relationship between themselves and the nation, and here are the things they're supposed to remember. First of all, they're always to keep the Passover exactly as he wrote it. Second, they're to acknowledge the firstborn child and the firstborn, firstborn male child, the firstborn males of all their livestock are dedicated to the Lord. And God provides a way so that be ye rich or be ye poor, you can dedicate your children to him. Because he provides, Matthew 6.31 was true even then. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? God says, keep the Sabbath day, keep the Sabbath week, keep the Sabbath years, I will provide. And of course, it was a lack of trust. And he reminds them of the necessity of keeping the Sabbath. This was that unique sign. Between circumcision and keeping the Sabbath, these were given uniquely to Israel. And, and so, the, and that's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not reiterated in the New Testament. Keeping the Sabbath day. The Sabbatic principle, yes. The Sabbath day, no. And they were all always to keep it. It didn't matter how busy, he says. It doesn't matter if it's harvest season. It doesn't matter if it's planning season. It doesn't matter. You take that day and you keep it. And they says, and there's three feasts you have to come keep and come up to the men, come up to Jerusalem. What will be? They didn't know yet, but what would be Jerusalem every year? And they were they were the feast of the first fruits, which is uh, Pentecost. And the second one is the feast of ingathering, which is the harvest feast, the feast of tabernacles. So you have the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, which is the Harvest Festival, and then the third one is Ingathering, which is Tabernacles. Those are to be kept. And that was to be a testimony because the nations around them would see Israel go, all the men going up to Jerusalem for those three times a year. And it was not keeping the Sabbaths, not keeping the feasts, it was not doing these things that led to God finally casting them out of the land. So they were to do this three times a year. They had divine appointments. He didn't command them to do a lot of things, but the things he commanded them were non-negotiable. And so are our commands. They're non-negotiable. Yes, they don't affect our salvation, but we are to love God, love others. And if we're doing that, it's going to make a radical difference to our lives and to our testimony and to our obedience. We don't have to worry about all this other stuff. If we're loving God and loving others, we're not going to do these things like covet or hey, we're not going to do any of those things. They won't be part of our life. Isn't it much nicer to do them from a standpoint of loving people as opposed to a list of don't do this stuff? Much better motivation, isn't it? And simpler, too. We don't have to keep a list. Is this loving? No, and don't do it. And notice again, he says, you do all these things, you're obedient, you keep Passover, you do all this stuff, and he will keep their enemies away from them. Israel had no excuse for not keeping their appointments. It didn't matter. And that's what happened with the years of the Sabbath, where they were to let their land rest for a year, which we talked about three, that would end up being almost three and a half years between not planting, letting it rest, not harvesting, the planting a new one, and then having another crop. And God is saying, hey, you'll get all you need that last year before the seventh year to carry you through the whole time. But they could never trust God for it. And it was just like the manna, right? You'll get enough on Friday to keep for the Sabbath so that you don't have to go out and collect it. God provides. When we're obedient, he provides in his way. may not be the way we want, but he provides. So he says that in Luke 16.10. 
One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest in much. In other words, if you can't do the little things right, you're not going to do the big things right. So God is willing to reestablish his covenant. And God is going to be the strength of Moses. And so the verses are a little odd here, but what it boils down to is that Moses is saying, he cut out the stones of the tablets, God, with his own hand, whatever that means, wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets. So we have three examples of God's handwriting in Scripture. What are they? He wrote on the wall of many, many, whatever. And then he wrote the Ten Commandments twice. Should have used carbon paper the first time. And so... Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, neither eating nor drinking. Obviously, God provided for him supernaturally because, while some people think you can go without food for 40 days, I don't think so. Nobody can go without water for 40 days. So, in some supernatural way, God met his nourishment needs without him eating and drinking. And God gives him the law. And see, God provides a miracle to sustain us. Psalms 37:17 and 55:22. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you, and He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And so it was during that time, 40 days of being with God, that He had an opportunity to fellowship with Him and learn from Him. And at some point, he wrote all of this down. Probably not the law and some of this may have started. He may have started his books during that period. Obviously, he didn't finish them until just before his death when he couldn't enter the land. And we think Joshua wrote the last little section of Deuteronomy. And this is why some people call it the Mosaic Code, because he wrote it, except he didn't. And so he comes down the mountain, 40 days in God's presence, his face is glowing like a spotlight. Actually, a few times he said, cover your face. And so he puts a veil on his face. And some think he finally left it there for a while because he was fading and didn't want the people to know. But anyway, the breach now between Israel and God has been healed. And the law has been, covenant has been reinstituted. The law has been finally given. They actually finally... The law comes down into the camp, and now the tabernacle begins to be constructed. And as I said, we're not, you can read the rest of that, but we've covered that pretty thoroughly in that study we did on the tabernacle. And again, if you read further in, you'll find that when they get to the door and send the spies into the promised land and say how wonderful it is, they also panic when they see the people there. Not trusting God. We can't go in. The people are giants in the land. And so what, God, what does God say? Okay. You don't want to go in? You don't need to go in. You're going to wander in the wilderness until all of you are dead. And your children are going, going to get to go in. You're not going to get to. And Joshua and Caleb are apparently the only ones that survive. And Joshua leads them into the land. Because they're fearful. And they don't want to go in. And so in Exodus, we see in many ways what the walk that the believer is supposed to be like. And very often what it's actually like. We too have been freed from slavery. Slavery to sin. It becomes the slaves of righteousness. And we've been saved, of course, by the Passover lamb. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so, like Israel, for us, the question becomes simply one of the quality of our walk. Are we going to walk in obedience, or are we going to be like Israel and find ourselves wandering around in the wilderness because we keep wanting to do things our own way? May we all be who Christ has called us to be. Mim and Nun from Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from evil ways in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. None. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from their precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And the first commandment is to love God, and the second is like unto him, love your neighbor.